Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, how are you, everybody? Hi, it is, uh, let's see, it's the 14th of January, 2023. My name is Luke Thomas. This is, I guess, the official post-fight show, instant reaction for UFC Vegas 67. As I mentioned, I'm Luke Thomas, one half of the hosting duo for Morning Combat. Brian Campbell is off tonight. It'll just be me here with, uh, with you for a little bit. We'll do some results. We'll do some analysis of this card. It was not a great card. Um... We knew it wasn't a great card, and it was at the apex, and I think a lot of folks were like, is this really the way the UFC is kicking off its year? I sort of view it as a soft opening, right? I sort of view it as like, this is obviously not the biggest event the UFC could have done to kick off the year, but, you know, it got the ball rolling, and they can work out whatever they have to work out before they get to one of the bigger events that will be in the subsequent weeks. Uh, uh, And by the way, there are some standout performances that are worth talking about from today's card, so we'll do that. So thumbs up on the video if you're watching. Hit subscribe. You know what? For years I've been doing the, because I've been posting this uh, and getting the feedback, they're like, oh, you know, why are you putting spoilers in this? And it's like, well, it's the post-fight show. Like, by definition, there are spoilers in it, but okay. Uh, and then they're like, well, it's just the title. But then it turns out it's actually not just the title of the video. It's actually the content and the audio. People still get bitter about it. But I just don't care anymore. So if you're here, you're here. Uh, that's the end of it, right? So let's do this thing, shall we? Yes. And we're back. Um, okay. Okay. We are not going to go super long. Usually for these, we do them after pay-per-views and they go for about an hour and some change. I don't think we're going to go that long today. I don't think there's much of a need or frankly a demand (laughs) that we go that long here tonight, but we will go just the same to get things started. Um, usually what I'll do is I talk about the main, the co-main, then a little bit of the rest of the card. I, I to Because this is not a typical pay-per-view, I'm going to go a little bit differently. I will do main and co-main because I think those are important. I'll do most of the main card overall. There's a couple other folks on the prelim card that I want to shout out as well that I thought had um, pretty important and very good results. So we'll get to that. Uh, all right. Let me pull up the notes here. And then we shall get this started. Um, all right. So, UFC Vegas 67, this was also known as UFC Fight Night, Uh, let's see, Strickland versus Imavov, I hope I am saying that correctly, I'm going to make an effort at it. Um, Of course, it was at the Apex, which is the UFC's private facility in Las Vegas. So here are the results, Uh, Sean Strickland defeated Nasurdin Imavov, excuse me, Imavov, 49-46 on two of the judges' scorecards, 48-47. Now, this is a fight where I really want to go to the stats right away. I was not really scoring this one in real time. I just kind of felt like 
by the end of the third, Imavov was a little bit... I'll tell you what, man. When guys are exchanging and they're having some success, like there, he definitely landed some good shots. But it's uh, it's not sustained. Um, the opponent is able to push back on it. And then what you see them do is resort to, frankly, kind of gimmicky stuff where they're like throw. I mean, it's... Someone like Yair Rodriguez, it's not gimmicky for him. But when they start going to spinning attacks and they're like, you know, they're, they're widely missing. And then like, you know, Ong Bak spinning back elbows and they're not even really coming close. Imovov had some nice elbows, but they were from direct contact in the clinch. They were not from at range. And so when you're just throwing these wild things, it's like, I, I wouldn't mind that in the last minute or the last couple of minutes of the fifth round. But he was starting those, I think, much earlier, even as early as the third, certainly within the fourth and they were going nowhere. And as soon as you start seeing that, you're like, Ugh, they're out of ideas. They're out of ideas. That's really, that generally is what that tells you. That doesn't mean that they can't win. doesn't mean that they won't win. But when you start seeing stuff like that, that, that usually is a signal to the audience that they are a little bit not sure what to do, uh, quite frankly. Um, maybe frustrated, maybe not, but just confused. Or I've tried everything and I've got what I've gotten and now I'm just going to start going to this stuff. I don't like it. And then it might work on lesser opponents, you know, um, in sparring or on the regional scene. But when you get to main event levels, even for, you know, this is going to be one of the lower level UFC events that you'll see this year. But even for that, Sean Strickland is a, you know, how, what is he up to? How many fights does Sean Strickland have? What is he up to? Almost nearly 30 fights. What's his record? Yes. 26 and five. So he's got more than 30 pro fights. You know, this is a very experienced decorated competitor that kind of shit is just for the most part never going to work it's never going to work um so when you see that that's like red flag city but okay the story of the fight the story of the fight as best i can tell was that uh sean strickland basically took time to get his style going but then once he did it was basically um uh, Imavov just didn't really know how to counteract it. It was funny. On my personal channel, I did a live chat uh, recently, and someone asked me, like, you know, Sean Strickland, if you just look from, like, a technical boxing perspective, he makes a fair amount of what you would call, like, very foundational errors, like rear hand parrying, backing up straight, standing very tall, and, you know, all kinds of stuff that gets him in trouble. And it's not like those things are not necessarily true, but, like, and yes, he's been stopped by... Pereira and other things, but like, why, you know, why is he able to have success? Like, as I mentioned, 26 and five, he won this one on what, uh, you know, in, insanely short notice. And he had just fought the last UFC fight of the last card of the year and then picked this one up. Like, and then I think he had to bump up weight class to light heavyweight to take it, but by virtue of how late notice it all was, um, like how, how was he able to get away with stuff? And it turns out like there's a couple things that I had mentioned, which was the quick, he, had, he does have quick reactions, even if it is a rear hand parry, which by the way, is not always the worst idea, but it's quick. And he kind of leans very quickly. He has very quick reactions to kind of get it. And then he stays right back in position. And then there's the forward pressure that comes behind it. But the other part too, that you really have to admire, it's not like Cormier, which was much more direct wrestling to striking transitions it was much more intentional with the particular grabbing but his hand fighting and or at least his bare minimum his hand obstruction in all of this is kind of uh, amazing like what he basically does is he bears down on opponents through pressure he does a lot of boxing combinations to the head he doesn't have much body work how much did he target to the body so he only targeted 22 percent to the body he targeted 71 percent to the head 
In fact, I'd like to go back and look at the last couple of fights against Jared Cannonier. How much did he target the body? He targeted it just 15%. Now, the Pereira fight doesn't really count because it didn't go very far. How about Hermanson? How many did he target to the body there? He targeted just 15%. So he went slightly more to the body this time, but the vast majority is a, is to the head. And he keeps this close range, and he bears down on you, and he kind of puts hands in your face. It almost as if like your natural reaction is to reach back out, to put the hands up, and then to and then to fire in that same range as well. But then he's hand fighting or parrying or just blocking or framing or he's outright grabbing wrists. He just does a ton to both pull you into the fight in in that range and then obstruct it. It's almost like you think you're close enough to just hit him. He just gets out of the way. He kind of blocks. He kind of shelters. He frames a little bit. He'll grab a wrist. He'll grab an inside tie and move out of the way or whatever. And it's all quick. But it's this constant weaving of that style of pressure and offense. And it pulls guys into it. I would love to see for uh, Imavov. Now, he targeted the body 32%. Let's look at some of his previous wins and the amount he targeted. How much did he target the body against Buckley? So, right, so we're talking about against Strickland, he targeted 32, 32 to the body this time. How much did he target, and then this is different too because this was two extra rounds, but uh, against Buckley, he only did 17%. Interesting. This was on the ground, so this was not going to count. Against Shabazian, yeah, he only targeted him 9%, but that wouldn't count because I think he had mounted crucifix. Ian Heinish, let's see about him. Let's see, 17%, a little bit higher. So he went even more to the body here this time, although I think some of that was kicking. Um, I'd have to go back and double check. But nevertheless, what do we have here per round? Um, I'd have to go back and look at some of these numbers. The numbers don't really bear out this theory a little bit, unfortunately. But it does feel like there was a lot of, how about this? There was a lot of effort, um, I think, paid to that space at a bare minimum. It just occupies a lot of the attention of the opponent, whether or not the direct targeting uh, really leads up to that. And so you end up having this, this constant battle where, again, Cormier was much more direct about grabbing the wrists, pulling them down, yanking them, um, you know, keeping his hands up constantly in a much more direct way. This is a little bit more subtle because Strickland's back here with this. Right, he's got one. He's got his his one hand up by his ear, one hand kind of across the midsection. He's not as Cormier, where he's like just almost on a, on a up upright wrestling stance. It's a little bit more boxing centric in that way, and so he does roll with stuff too. But uh, part of it is, I do believe this is to be quite true. Just the amount of hand fighting he does really makes it difficult. I think the other part too was I had you know he's really changed his style up. Early on in his career, he was doing a lot more leg kicking. You saw some return to that a little bit. A little bit here, but more I thought the front teeps were really the things that has become the dominant weapon of his below the waist, so to speak, in terms of like what kind of kicking or stomping or, you know, whatever kind of game he would be employ. There's been a big switch there. But really the answer for me is that Imavov was getting pressured backwards. He had a hard time landing in terms of um, setting his feet and getting the, the right distance he wanted. He was kind of getting just just inched into an overwhelmed. There was the hand fighting that I thought constantly forces resetting. How about this? Strickland, uh, when he needed to, especially in the later rounds, especially in that fifth, maybe it was the fourth or the fifth round, um, clinching. Clinching and then pressing Imavov into the fence and doing it with like double underhooks, like very strong positions. Never really got much of it. I think he, he got one takedown, Sean Strickland, in the in the second round. He held it for a little while. Uh, but in general, most of those didn't lead to much. They didn't lead to much offense. In fact, sometimes that was where Imavov was able 
to get the elbow over the top. But nevertheless, we're, we're talking about like what makes Sean Strickland very effective when he is very effective. The volume is one. The stance that he kind of, um, or I should say the, dis- the distance that he employs. Um, again, the hand fighting and everything. The pressuring. All of that is part of it. And I think just sort of another key to it is he just constantly frustrates rhythm. He constantly disrupts people. He constantly forces guys to start from zero and then and, and, and all over again. There's really just a lot of that going on. Um, and of course, I think overall, overall, it, with you know, Pereira fighting a couple of little ones notwithstanding, he's hard to hit cleanly um, to most of these guys. Uh, I also think that Imovov just wasn't ready f- in terms of five-round cardio. And when they were telling, his corner was telling Imovov, I think after the third round, you have to take him down. I was like, good luck. It's true that if you look at Imovov's record, the two finishes that he has in the UFC, they both come uh, by way of a fight that, that went to the ground, the Shabazian fight, and I forget the other one. Um, but they went, they took place on the, the, the finish itself took place on the ground. But dude, Sean Strickland's got very good uh, takedown defense, right? Um that doesn't seem like a great idea midway or I should say past the midway point of a fight. Like now you're like, Oh, let's just go take him down. Uh, uh-uh. that's not going to be, that's not going to be available. Really just, you couldn't, Imavov couldn't mount an offensive identity typically in winning performances, typically. And then this could obviously have a million different caveats that you can think of, but over the course of a five round decision, typically a winning uh, performance has some kind of identity around it. The the winning fighter was able to pick up on one, two, three, four things, whatever it was, meaningfully land offense in a consistent and kind of reliable way, which leads to then other kinds of offense, which sets up other kinds of problems and blah blah blah. But but like you can kind of like paint a picture, like what was this person trying to do? What was successful? What did they noodle through? What 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 can we infer from that? There's a there's there's a substance there to it. With Imovov, he just there was no real offensive identity he was able to produce. Strickland's identity, which the commentators were speaking to, was very much um, noticeable. It was easy to detect. It was a Sean Strickland fight by and large. He was a little bit more aggressive this time. I know there were a lot of complaints after the Cannoneer fight. I thought this was a better fight for him than the Cannoneer fight. I thought this was a more entertaining fight. Now, the Cannoneer fight was more... Technical in either direction, I think that is probably fair to say. But uh, Strickland, I think, you know, trying to go for it a little bit more. His right hook early was big. He would get Imovov moving to his own right, and he would meet him with the hook. And what you would notice that was Imovov would not roll underneath. He would just kind of shell up and move into it. And he was getting greedy with it uh, constantly. I thought that was pretty great from Sean Strickland. He was just, there was a little bit more emphasis um, this time from him. A little bit more intentionality. Some of the numbers here for Strickland, okay, so these are, again, uh, quantitative totals, not qualitative, but overall significant strikes. Strickland won, let me uh, refresh this to make sure it's the most, oh, here we go, this is better. Yes, thank you. Um, the, the most up-to-date numbers, I just refreshed it and Fightmetric updated it, uh, 182 for Strickland, 123 for Imavov, so first round, second round, these are the updated numbers. 24 to 19, Strickland to Imovov. 22-22, big round three for Strickland. 47 to 24, big round four. 57 to 23, and then round five, 32 to Imovov's um, 35. So he got this. He got a uh, a lead in uh, one of them, and they were tied again numerically, not qualitatively, 
in the second round. But in that second round, Strickland also got the takedown when he had one minute and 49 seconds of control time for whatever that is worth. Um, let's look at the place where they targeted in terms of the body and the head. Strickland went to the head 16 times in round one, 13 times in round two, 31 times in round three, 47 in round four, and 27 in round five. To the body, just 5, 8, 12, 8, and then 5 again. He was headhunting big time in that fifth round. But they were just kind of wildly exchanging. Again, part of the story there for Strickland in terms of more effort. Let's see how he looked against um, against Cannoneer uh, in that fight. Let me look at the numbers there. So that much lower output, 152. So we have 30 more significant strikes than landed. He attempted 410 in that fight. Uh, Strickland attempted 420. So he attempted about the same, but much more. How about this? Um, much more accurate, much more accurate, just was able to land significantly more. That's going to be due to the, probably a lot of the skill difference between Imavov and Kananir, but nevertheless, he was able to do that. Uh, again, so he landed 182 on Imavov against Kananir, just 152. And then per round, let's see the numbers here, 16, 13, 25, 28. He got, so this is always the case for Strickland. Low level, round one, he might get the lead, he might not. Very close in round two. And then in round three, the number begins to pick up substantially. 35, 33, and then 43 um, for him over down the stretch. So he probably feels like he won the last three. Interesting. Yeah, that's Cannoneer. Very, very much reading. Very much kind of laying back right here. And then when you th and then when he wants to throw, he's throwing. And then he waits. And then the hands are up and he's grabbing. And it's just disruptive. It's just disruptive. It's very, very disruptive to play that guy's game in that range. Dean Thomas talking about how he just kind of forces guys to play on that game. If guys don't have the footwork, if they don't have the ability to get someone like Strickland off of them, right, by jabbing in their face or front kicking on their own way or just whatever whatever way to intercept them with wrestling pressure, make them not want to pressure into them is really the kind of key. Like somebody who can negate that or minimize that, who can mitigate that, that pressure, that influence, those are going to be the kind of guys that can beat Sean Strickland, but if they are going to be sus, if they're going to be victims of it, if they don't really have a meaningful way of getting the person off of them, other than oh, I'll just fight him, I'll just fight him in the middle, I'll fight him in the clinch. He's he can then he'll tie you up and then he'll you know he'll have his hands up wrapping yours or whatever and then he'll double underhook you and press you into the fence and then they'll force the reset and then he's back to pressuring again. It's just a very it's a very overwhelming way to fight if you don't have some of the other requisite ways of what are ways to repel an a a a pressure fighter in that way. Um, more I think much much more attacks to the body have to be there. I think much more attacks to the leg. You have to have great. Jab, you have to have good footwork, you have to be able to be able to put pressure on them. And Imavov just couldn't get much of that in conjunction working together. All right, uh, some of the other results here. By the way, so where does he go in terms of the rankings? So let's pull up the rankings as it stands today at this moment. So at this moment, <laughs> they're doing power slap ads on UFC.com slash rankings. Yeah, great. Thank you. I'm all good. Uh, for middleweight, so they have Sean Strickland at 7 and Imavov at 12. This won't do much for him in the rankings. Ahead of him is Costa, Brunson, Vittori, Cannoneer, Whitaker, and old Izzy. So I guess a fight against, and Vittori is now training at Extreme Couture, so that that's interesting. So I guess you would have to do, I think Brunson has a fight coming up. Brunson's fighting who? 
the Leedze, something like that, or yeah, some something like that. I have to, who is Derek Brunson fighting? Let me see. Now that I now that I brought it up, let's see. Derek Brunson is fighting. Excuse me, he is fighting. Uh, no, Drickus Duplessis. Drickus Duplessis. That's interesting. Where's Drickus ranked ten? So yeah, I get. We'll see what. I, he's gonna have a tough time. I guess they could maybe do Costa if that's a thing they can do. We'll have to see, but it's a lot of guys probably below him because I don't know if he's going to get. Uh, it, and also depends what they do with Pereira. It's going to be it's really hard to say. Vittori, maybe, maybe. I, I really don't know. All right, uh, let's see. Your next fight on the card. How about this one? This was great at Featherweight. Dan Ige defeating Damon Jackson via KO, 413 of round number two. This is another one that was kind of like that. Now, in the, sec- in the sense that one guy was was much more defining the terms of the fight than the other guy. Now, Damon Jackson at the beginning of the second round came out quite well, but Dan Ige, what you noticed from Dan Ige was, I uh, thought he had the edge in punching power, even though he's a smaller guy in terms of uh, frame. He seemed to be like maybe the more physical of the two. Damon Jackson was having to rotate on the outside. There were times he was blitzing to get in. There Obviously, there were times he wanted to get the takedown, although Ige got the takedown at the end of the first which was nice and authoritative. But really what you saw there from Ige was he kind of had to follow the guy. He was he was changing stances. Um, he was mixing up looks for entries and whatnot. But really what you saw was he was at times able to catch J- Jackson rotating on the outside. But the better guys are the ones who have good shot selection and good accuracy, great combination from him. How did he do it? Jackson decided to close the distance on him. And as he did, he kind of double jabbed and then smothered himself a little bit. So you actually saw... Uh, Ige go right to the body and then left upstairs. But the reason why it landed first was partly, well, partly it landed authoritatively. One, because if I go right to the body and I pull my left shoulder back when I, when I come over the top, it's going to land like a, you know, like a sledgehammer, which is exactly what you saw, right? So you, you're, you're essentially, you could just be here and then load up like that or whatever, or you can re- greet him with a jab. He decided to greet him with a body hook to load up the left so he could come over the top. But the other part was he beat him on the timing. If you watch carefully, Ige threw and landed the right just prior to fully Damon Jackson being able to set his feet and throw. And because he had thrown the right and then he was going to be first coming with his left, he was actually on the inside of the punch of Jackson. So he got to the target just quicker. But if you notice, he was kind of having a head down like this. And Jackson was about to throw a rear hand uppercut. Uh, But he just got beat because the timing, Ige was just a little bit ahead of him in the timing and was selling it by kind of looking down. He wasn't waiting for it and then just kind of touching to the body so he could obviously meet him up there. He was looking like, I'm going to go to the body, like almost he was going to stay down there, keeping his head down, which drew the uppercut. But that's what drew the end of the fight. That's just great work from Dan Ige. Great work. And, you know, you heard him that very, very emotional uh, post-fight sort of, interview speech that he gave where he is detailing how hard it's been to lose and then to get up day after day after day to find purpose, to find belief that you can actually get back out there and you can do this and you can win. It's been very difficult for him and setting the example for his son, man, I can believe all that. I can believe all that. That was a sensational win. Now, I don't know what that does for him in terms of the rankings. The story of this fight, we had talked about it on Morning Combat, was Dan Ige was a guy who in the last couple of years um, really kind of, you know, Wanted to see what he was made of. Like, he really made a push through the top of that division and 
kind of came up short against the ones who were the very, very best, the cream of the crop there. Gave some of them very good fights, but in the end, you know, a little bit short. Um, but he obviously is very skilled, very powerful, you know. And he black belt in jiu-jitsu, trains in a good team, like really works on his craft. Like it's a guy you should take seriously. And, uh, you know, he couldn't beat the very best guys at the top of that division, but he wasn't done. He's still young. There's time to get better, make a second push at it, see what you can do. And this was part of maintaining that belief that here's a guy who on the right night with some work on his craft and everything else, like he can, he can beat, he can, he can beat good fighters. And Damon Jackson is a guy who, you know, washed out of the UFC and had a long journey back and then had really come to life. Not through this style of fighting. He, he's much more hands-on, grapple, get on top, transition, you know, that kind of thing. He's a little bit more of that, that style of fighter. But, um, you know, he really wanted he wanted to get the push that Ige had had. had. He wanted that. He wanted, like, I want my shot at that. He, both, both of these guys had experienced redemption. Jackson was sort of still on that tour. And they kind of met at a moment where it was like, who's coming or going here? That was a great win for Dan Ige to like, I think, you know, remind folks what he's capable of, remind him that um, I think it'd be very foolish to say, well, we saw him against the top and that's that. He is, let me see how old Dan Ige is. Dan Ige is 31. He's 31. Now, of course, he's had some tough fights, right? He lost in, uh, consecutively to Chan Sung Jung, Josh Emmett, and Movsar Evloev. Like those are, you know, and, he, and by the way, and, and Calvin Cater, we talked about this in Morning Combat as well. None of those guys could finish him, right? So he lost all those via decision. And I just want to point this out. Like, uh, loses to Cater, fights Gavin Tucker, KO, round one. Loses those, those three fights, fights Damon Jackson's, KO, round two. Like, clearly he's better than a certain level of featherweight. Now, there's a big question about how far he can actually go, you know, and that this first major crack at it, it didn't go well, um, but 31 years of age, you look at all the improvement he's made already, you just look at some of the physical tools that he's got, some of the other pieces of the puzzle that I've mentioned, there's good reason to believe in him. There's good reason to believe, you know, again, how far can he go? I don't know. My only point is we shouldn't be slamming the door shut on him. How far he goes is really up to him, up to him and obviously the rest of his, I mean, I, this is very much unwritten, but... Uh, I, I like his game. I like I like some of the specificity of the things he can do. I like his accuracy. I like I like his subterfuge in terms of how he sets things up. You know, selling it with the eyes and the, just the real pinpoint timing of it. That's nice, man. That's good work. That's that's high level stuff. Putting more of that together, I think, would do him a lot of favors. There also is a question about at 145 how he physically matches up with like the Caters, the Emmets. There is a bit of a question long term. Like those guys do seem to be um, physically ahead of him in ways. I don't know how much of that bridge can be gapped. Uh, excuse me, how much of that gap can be bridged? Excuse me. Um, but skill for skill, he's not done. He's not done at all. That was a nice win and a walk off KO too. I know some folks are like, "Oh, he wasn't done, guys. He was done. Uh, you didn't see him protest." And like the rule is not knocking somebody unconscious. Like that obviously is a very uh, clean and forthright way to do it. You, that's obviously great if you can do that. You don't have to do that. That's not a rule. The rule is not they're done when they are no longer, 
you know, when it looks like they're on anesthesia. That doesn't that, that does, that's not how this works. What works is that he he kind of fell back and didn't really motion to cover or to roll. He just kind of laid there, right? And so yeah, he's breathing and he's like there in the sense that uh, he's awake. But he's not in any kind of combat-ready position after getting physically dropped. Like he's done, he's done. He's just, he's just, he's laying there. You know, um, that's an easy call. That was a good call. I don't have any issue with that call whatsoever. All right, I didn't really go to the stats on that fight because I don't really care. Uh, okay, going down the line here because I want to get to some of these other ones. How about Roman Kopulov defeating Punahele Soriano at 319 of the second round via body kicks and punches. Dude, Kopilov's jab was firing like a piston in that first round. I couldn't believe it. He was getting hit with some big shots. It wasn't like he wasn't, but in general, he was just pumping that jab over and over and over again. He's landing some good leg kicks. He was landing some good body kicks. But the big real key to it is how does he stop him in the end? By the second round, he discovers he can land to the body with hard body kicks. And and Soriano must be, I mean, otherworldly tough because he sat there and ate those like they were not a big deal when I know that they, they must have been a big deal. Um, and he fought on for a little bit. Then he ate more of it, and there's only so much a human being could take. But what's the sort of key to the story with Roman Kopilov here? This is a middleweight fight. You know, he's jabbing, he's jabbing, he's jabbing, he's jabbing. And Soriano is not like a slip and counter guy. Soriano's like a high guard, kind of get in range with my high guard, and then kind of, you know, bruise forward with punches, sometimes switching stance to cover distance, right? But it's a high guard type. I'm going to sit behind this. I'm going to catch punches on the edge of the forearms or whatever. And so Kopilov was like, sweet, great, two southpaws, no problem, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat this guy alive. He's gonna, his liver is actually closer to me. So you can get more power when it's open stance, but if it's this way or this way, it's closer to you. So, yeah, um, tore him up with it. Tore him to pieces with a, with a liver kick that he just could only handle so many times. But what set it up was the guard comes up which transfers defense. Now there's no defense below my elbows. It's not like he's moving. He's kind of stationary with his feet. So, boom. There it is. Again, there's nothing really right. Excuse me. There's a lot of things right. There's nothing really wrong with a lot of different ways to defend a strike. People always ask, like, what's the, you know, this guy does X or this guy does Y. Is that right or that wrong? Well, it's all, in many ways, I should say, not all, but in many ways, it's very context-dependent. You know, slipping punches is, I think, um, very, very valuable. In many ways, probably a little bit more valuable than just having a guard up. But just having a guard up can be hugely valuable, can be hugely effective, both as a way to catch punches and as a way to, like, cheat your way into range like Alexander Volkanovsky does. Like, there's, there's not a right or wrong answer. So when we're talking about, like, oh, Soriano had defense like this, well, catching punches that way is fine. It's just that you would like to see that it combined with other forms. Like, he's got to be on his feet a little bit more. I do think slipping should be a little bit more. In the main event, yeah, you know what's funny? Uh, last week, you saw Gervonta Davis against Hector Luis Garcia. He, him and Jerron uh, Ennis. Here come the punches. They would turn, and then the punches would kind of go by like that when they would turn. You saw a little bit of that from Imavov tonight. A little bit of that. A little bit of that. You know, he, he wasn't obviously as slick as, 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 as a pro boxer would be. But my point being is the more you can begin to incorporate all of these other elements, the more it gives you choices 
about how to build a game plan or what tool you might need for any individual opponent or any individual context. When you have a sort of a more singular style of defense, and there's nothing wrong with having, you know, like things you prefer to do than others, no matter almost the context, I think even that is okay. But if you've got a guy who's been going to the bot, let's look at the copy law. Of, I don't, I'm not sure what the tape says on him, actually. I'd be interested to see that. Let's take a look at that. So Kopilov in this fight, how much did, yeah, I mean, look at this. Soriano targeted the bot, uh, the head, excuse me, 89%. <laughs> 89. Head hunting, you know. Um, how about this for, that's interesting. Kopilov, they don't have the targeting broken down by round. That, the part, that part kills me. Because they only have Kopilov as going 17% to the body, 14% to the leg, to the legs, 68% um, to the head. In round two, yeah, here we go. How about this? Okay, to the body in round one, Kopilov, four of four. Uh, in the body, round two, 10 of 11. The only difference is that he went to the head a fair amount, uh, 34 of 52 in round two. And then he went to the leg three of three. He went to the to the leg nine of nine. So active with the leg kicks, Kopilov was in the first round, dialed it back, and then used those to go more. And that's that's other part of it too, right? It's not just that I'm putting this in your face and then the guard comes up. Um, he was you know mixing in kicks, so it's hard to tell. You didn't know they were going to come to the body because they they never really did before. I mean, a few of them did, right? But some of those some of those were punches, whatever. I'm just pointing out you're mixing and all these other things, giving them something else to think about. Now it's leg kicks, and then you dial back and then raise the elevation. They don't know what's coming. Boom, it hits them right in the midsection. It's nasty. It's nasty. He, that is good work. Good work from Roman Copyleve. Let me see. So we got, his breakdown was head, body, leg, 68, 17, 14. 68, 17, 14. So against Alessio Di Carico, what was it? Uh, yeah. Interesting, 74, 15, 10. Not, not too much of a radical departure. And then against Albert Dariah, he lost that fight. What was it him for there? Again, 71, 16, 11. Not too dissimilar. And then against Carl Roberson, same thing. What was it for him? Way different, 51, 40 to 8. I'd have to go back and revisit that fight to remember Roman Kopula versus Carl Roberson. But nevertheless, good win by him. Uh, okay, moving down the card here. This was a big one. Raquel Pennington defeating Ketlin Vieira via split decision, 29-28. This was a very, very closely contested fight. Early in the, fir the first round, like Vieira's round to me, her jab was on point, and you just saw like Pennington had a hard time closing the distance, a hard time. Just couldn't find her. And you saw her switch dancing her way in. It just wasn't there for her. It, not in the first round. And then when they locked up, it just looked to me like Vieira was a little bit stronger. So I was like, man, the physicality is there. Like the jab is there. It's going to be a long night for Pennington. But by round two, different story. And she was able to find her way in there. Part of it was leg kicking she was able to do. Part of it was body punching. Let's pull up some of the numbers for her if we can. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. 
or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Uh, but by the by, round two, and especially by round three, you saw that Vieira began to get flat-footed. That was the big key. Vieira got flat-footed. And when she got flat-footed, and she because remember, Vieira is not a slipper as well. She's very much the hands come up. She does not move her head hardly at all. So she is relying upon trunk movement, catching, or her feet to get out of it. And there's not, there's not a whole lot else she can do, right? She wasn't using her feet. And so Pennington was able to just get right into range. That opened up her boxing. That opened up, opened up her drive to the clinch. Even when she was kind of out-muscled in the clinch, I thought she was like craftier in the clinch. She was the one doing better damage, even though she was kind of being corralled and controlled. She was just much better. She was just much better in, the, in that particular space. So overall striking differences, 81 to 64. Again, these are quantitative, not qualitative totals. Pennington going 45, 39, 14 in terms of head, body, leg, breakdown. Let me see here uh, overall. First round, she landed more. Second round, she landed more. Pennington, third round, she, she outland. She numerically outstruck her in all three rounds. But again, the difference there with the like the quality of them in the first round in particular, I thought made a big difference. In terms of the uh, placement of her strikes, yeah, this is interesting. She landed nine to the body in round one, uh, 11 in round two, 12 in round three. So she went more and more to the body. I think some of that was to the, to the, um, from, the from those clinch positions. Right for your clinch, yeah, twenty-seven percent of her offense was in the clinch, N- nearly thirty percent. So more than one out of every four here, obviously. Um, for Raquel Pennington, in terms of where she landed, where she did some of her best work, yeah, a lot of it was to the head. But you know what? This is the interesting part. Vieira's offense kind of fell off a little bit in the first round, fifteen, second round, ten. So, no, it picked back up in the third. That's not quite right, actually. Actually, it was Pennington who dropped off in the third. Excuse me, I misread the numbers there. Um, it was actually, she she began to headhunt a little bit more. But in general, in general, uh, just stayed a little bit busier. A little bit, just a little bit busier. And let me go to the leg here for Raquel Pennington. She landed four or five leg kicks in round one, four of four leg kicks in round two, four or four leg kicks in round three. Now, Vieira landed more, nine of nine in round two. Uh, but nevertheless, it, it seemed like it had more of a pronounced effect on Vieira. She just wasn't moving. Dude, What if she's moving and she's slipping, if she could move and punch and slip, man, she would be terrifying. But it's she's got to make trade-offs the way she, she punches and the way she carries her stance. And once she became stationary... Pennington was off to the races. She's by the way, this is what I mean about Pennington, dude. Like, this is who Pennington has fought in the UFC, man. Roxanne Motoferi, excuse me, Jessica Andrade, Ashley Evans Smith, Holly Holm, Jessica Andrade. She fought Jessica Andrade fucking twice. Uh, and then subbed her out one time. It's just insane. Betch Cohea, Elizabeth Phillips, Misha Tate, Amanda Nunez, Jermaine Duran Demi, Irene Aldana, Holly Holm, Marion Renault, Penny Keon Zod, Macy Chasson, I think is how you say it. Fuck me if I keep getting that one wrong. Aspen Ladd and then Ketlin Vieira. Dude, she has fought a fucking murderer's row. Amanda, where was the Amanda Nunes fight? Did I even mention that at some point? I think I did. Uh, you know, a murderer's row with tough fights and injuries and everything else. But she has like she has seen all different kinds of looks 
from all different kinds of opponents in all different times of a fight. She's just going to know how to, she's going to steal rounds from you, man. She's going to steal. If you let her be busier, if you have a stand up clinch fight with Raquel Pennington and you let her numerically outstrike you, like just let her be a little bit busier, let her find a few more opportunities to score. She's going to steal the rounds. She's going to steal the rounds. She's just clever enough to know exactly what she needs to win and to push the fight just far enough to get it. And that's exactly what you saw. Clever, clever, clever. She knew she had to get it in close, beat him up a little bit, slow him down a little bit, make him work a little bit. And then once you did, take over from there. That's really nice work um, from her. I mean, I don't know what else to say about this dude. Umar Nurmagomedov defeating Hayoni Barcelos. Uh, via KO at 440 of round four. Ladies and gentlemen, Umar Nurmagomedov is a fucking hammer. <laughs> He's a hammer. He's a hammer and a half. I mean, I, wow. I don't even have the numbers on this fight. Uh, let me just say this about him. Like, How did he do this? Boy, he's got, he's cl- he's he's crafty. So what he ends up doing is he's got all these different looks that he gives you. And he goes leg kicks to the inside, leg kicks to the outside. And then that almost kind of looks like his sidekick, but not quite. They're kind of set up a little bit, which almost kind of looks like his body kick, which is a little bit different. And then, by the way, he has a front kick. And did you notice something? He starts it to the body, and then it goes a little bit higher as the fight goes on. So he begins to relocate it. And every time he's throwing it, what reaction is he getting? Did he get exactly the right distance? What did he learn about this exchange? And he begins to put it all together, right? So, okay, so this I can throw this one under this context, and that works here. When he moves this way, whatever he's looking for, he begins to realize what, what the reactions are to the various similar-looking strikes that he throws are. And then he'll weave a punch in there and see what happens, right? And he'll do it when he switched stances, too, a little bit, which is how he got him on this one. He switched stance, and then the punch came behind it, and he tried to throw something else, and it didn't even matter at that point. But here's what I'm trying to point out. When he's throwing all those kicks, then began to weave the punch. Once he begins to weave in um, the patterns, right, where once he's like he's landed the inside leg kick, the outside, the body kick, the 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 real the location of the front kick is going higher. Once he begins to like put those together in a pattern, it's all downhill from there. When he's throwing them single strikes or maybe one two, he's just testing. He's just gathering. I mean, if those land, great. But like, he's not expecting them to. You know, not cleanly anyway. Right. He wants to keep you honest with them, but they're not. Those are not the home runs he's looking for. But once he starts putting those together, where he's disguising one, then it comes from this angle, and then he'll put another strike behind it, and then another strike behind that, or you know whatever the case, like all the different permutations of what he can do. When he begins to stack those on top of each other in succession through combination, often through distance, the fight went downhill immediately. Immediately, Barcelos was was we had he had nothing for him. Like, and the fact that he could do it that quickly. By the way, Barcelos has how many fights? Barcelos is 35 years old and has more than 20 pro fights. And he got dissected. He got diagnosed and then dissected and finished off in under a round. <laughs> Shit. Feel sorry for the guy who has to fight him next feel sorry for you already bro i don't even know who you are but i feel terrible for you because you're not gonna win it, almost certainly not gonna win um that fucking guy is good 
Let me look at his numbers, man. I've actually never looked up his overall stats. I bet they're sick. Let's see what old Umar Nurmagomedov has for us, man. Let's see. Fuck me. Are you shitting me? <laughs> Good Lord. Listen to this. Strikes landed per minute, 4.35. Let me tell you, that is above average. Okay? That is well above average. Strikes absorb per minute, 0.37. This dude's positive differential is nearly four. I don't know if I've ever seen anything like that. I've seen a positive differential when it's four, when it was like Justin Gaethje, and it was like, you know, crazy amount landing, but also taking crazy damage. This is landing at a high clip and taking virtually nothing. Striking accuracy, 70%. That's high. That's usually around 40, high 40s. You know, between 45 and 50. Striking defense, 85%. Yeah, he's hard to hit. Takedown average per 15 minutes. You ready for this? Five. Shit. <laughs> Takedown accuracy is always low because... Uh, because uh, they're just chaining it together. So, they, you know, you'll miss on half of them, but it doesn't matter. Now, they say his takedown defense is zero. I don't quite understand that. Uh, no one's ever taken him down, so wouldn't his takedown defense be 100%? He's never been taken down, so I'm going to say it's 100%. I don't quite understand how they uh, have zero there. but And then submission average. Dude, that is one of the most insane stat lines you're going to see. Oh, and by the way, undefeated. If that, I mean... <laughs> That dude is just a problem. Good Lord. I mean, that is nuts. And look, look, listen to how well he mixes it. This is his targeting. Ready this? 55% to the head, 33% to the body, 11% to the legs. Right? So he's touching you everywhere. 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 Now, he's got places he likes more than others, but he's, he's hitting you in every side-to-side, -side, up, down. And then when he begins to put the combinations together, when he begins to weave two, two, three things together, three, four things together, this will wrap, homie. It's over for you. It's over for you. Good God, he is talented. Anyway, he switched stance through combination. I think he faked high then switched stance. And I think he hit him with a left or right hook. I can't remember. Hit him with the hook. The follow-up didn't even need to be there. He went and tried to finish him off with a hammer fist, you know, I think out of instinct. Um, and then realizing that, yeah, that the guy was done. Holy shit. Holy shit. That is a stat line and a half. That dude, is he ranked? If he's not ranked, they are completely fucking up these rankings. So this was Bantamweight. Oh, he's ranked. He's ranked number 11. Yeah, dude. So here's who's ahead of him. Ricky Simone. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Pedro Munoz, okay. Song Yadong, sure. Dominic Cruz at seven. Rob Font, um, yeah. Dude, any of these. Any of these. But if they wanted to do Simone or, you know, like who's the guy to beat Marab? Yo, Umar is. Umar is. Marab is a very tough guy to fight. Like you saw what he did to Aldo. Give him Umar. See what happens. That's a bad fight for Marab. That's a good fight for Umar. Dude, he's fighting for gold. If not this year, then next. I mean, I don't know, I don't know what to tell you. That dude, that dude is fighting for a title. Relatively soon. Like, he's 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 stupid talented. Uh, okay. Let's see. If you have any questions, I'll get to them. I don't know if there's any. I don't know if there are. We'll see.
Just a few. Um, someone's saying there was weird betting before the flick fight. I haven't heard anything. Uh, what about Jones versus Gone? Did you guys see this? So uh, an ad went up on out, the T-Mobile Arena has this giant like screen outside of it. And there there was an ad for a UFC 285 John Jones versus Cyril Gone. And apparently, according to Stephen Morocco, MMA fighting, that that was premature and was the deal's not done. But then John Jones has a video on Henry Cejudo's channel where he basically announces that this is happening, uh, or at least says it's happening. Doesn't really announce it, and he says it's serial gain. Like he doesn't even say the guy's name right. So it seems like it's happening. And and uh, an old uh, who who is who is giving me shit on um, Michael Chiesa was giving me shit on Twitter because I was like, listen, I have I'm. I'm being purely speculative here, like 100% speculative. But, you know, we have documented numerous times on the record. This is a fact. We know that the UFC has at times, for reasons you can only ask them, released news to the public about a fight being official when it never was official in order to put pressure on the folks to sign to fight it. Like, that's a thing that has happened multiple times, documented with evidence. So, is it that crazy to think that that was released in some kind of way? And then all of this, by the way, the tweet that he put out by Cyril Gaon, like, does the UFC ask certain guys to do things like that? Again, I don't know about this particular case, but have I heard that in the past? Yes, of course I have, you know, to put pressure on guys. So is it part of a pressure campaign against Francis Ngannou? Only time will tell. But if the consolation prize is Cyril Gaon and John Jones, I'll take that. I'll take that. Oh, Dana just announced that the post-fight presser. Well, all that's up in smoke then. Fine. Uh, there you go. Um, that's a sick fight. That's a sick fight. Um, we'll talk more about that later. I'll make a separate video for that later, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, that's great. I mean, we don't really know what to make of John Jones. Anyway, I stand by that. It's unfair to be speculative. Although in this case, uh, the speculation it turns out is unwarranted, uh, ultimately, but, um, nevertheless, if they're going to make that fight, if that is actually official now, then, um, I guess we have to ask what happened with Francis. I guess we have to ask. I'd have to hear what Dana had to say. I don't have enough information to really make a, a sound opinion about it. Um, if Jones versus Gone is actually for the undisputed heavyweight title, what happens with Francis? I really don't know. I guess they stripped him. I I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I, I, I don't have any. I'm working with very limited information here. Who did the most to raise their stock after tonight's fights? Uh, Umar Nurmagomedov. Okay, Dana just said that Francis is a free agent. Okay, and with Oh, Jesus. Okay, now I have more information. Dana just said Francis is a free agent and was stripped of his title. How damaging is that for the UFC brand? Isn't it crazy that the heavyweight and light heavyweight belts are both vacant at the moment? Wow. Boy, that is a lot to take in. Um... So Francis is going to play the free agent market, huh? Um. Wow, that's big. Let me see if anyone texted me about this news because usually they do. Sorry, I know I'm live on air. Um. Okay, let's think about that for a second. So, on the John Jones side, it would have been better to see him fight Francis, this overwhelming, terrifying force who had beaten Cyril Gaon in his last fight, although it had been out for some time with MCL or, or I should say ACL injury. Yet, uh, John Jones had been off for a, a huge amount of time. That is now gone. They have stripped him. 
and he is no longer. So there's a big question of like, would he go to PFL? Would he go to Bellator? Is he going to try and box Deontay Wilder? Is he going to try and box Andy Ruiz? Is he going to try and box Tyson Fury? What is going to happen with that? Um, is it a bad look that they stripped him? Well, the in some sense, yes. Uh, you would always want that title handing over process to be more linear. And to just lose your champ like this to free agency is not great in the sense that I think fans will be disappointed. Um, but at the same time, if the overall balance of how many of the bigger names they control hasn't shifted, then I don't know how much long-term consequence there will be. That said, if Francis were to join the PFL and get 50% of this revenue and they could find an opponent where they could actually sell this and he could make a reasonable amount of money then yeah, you could do something with that, I suppose. Uh, that would actually be big for him. Like On the one hand, there's something great potential here. There is this potentially great return of John Jones, and could he be something special at heavyweight? There's obviously that as part of it. On the other side, there is a, another sort of different kind of greatness where if Francis has left the UFC and is going to fight either boxers that he's not good enough to beat or PFL guys he's way better than but can make big money doing that in what other other way that does begin to reset the market a little bit. Like it's all of these things, Nate Diaz doing it, Francis doing it, um, you know, bigger names using leverage from contracts that were a possible only because of the lawsuit, the collective, the, the collective lawsuit that is happening for former fighters forcing the UFC to then put these provisions in their contract. Now you're beginning to see those provisions bearing fruit with big stars who still have pay-per-view names leaving the company, can they get enough of that to matter? Can those guys actually find a lucrative afterlife therein? Can they can enough of them do it where this really begins to change the the market? No one really knows. We really have to see. That's really what this is all about. Um, those are the two things I'd be paying. Well, the three things I'd be paying attention to. The third being can Cyril gone. What would it say if he were to beat John Jones? If if this is the John Jones redemption story or the John Jones second or third act, or however you wanted to, to talk about this, really, the John Jones story, he comes back and adds another chapter. That's one way to look at it. The other way would be, well, what if it's really um, Cyril's story, and he goes in there and he beats John Jones, and John is not who we think he is at heavyweight, and blah, 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 blah. Um, that's the other part of it. But this is huge. If I, Man, I'm very, I'm like, you know, I'm reacting in real time, so this is a lot for me to take in. Um, man. You're asking how damaging is that for the UFC brand? It's only really damaging in a long-term sense if Francis actually makes good on the departure and enough guys follow his lead. Because I've seen big names in previous years with different contracts, mind you, so meaning different scenarios, leave UFC for other endeavors and it never necessarily meant a whole lot in the end. It didn't lead to much. We're talking about, you know, um, remember, there was this big fighter lawsuit that happened almost 10 years ago at this point, like it's eight years, and it still hasn't fully f even gotten close to being finished, but the UFC had to react to it. And one of the things they did was they put in the earlier sunset clauses, like the five-year clauses and, and some other things as well. These first names you're seeing, that happened around 2016, 2017, I think. So add in five years, here we are. You're beginning to see some of that now bear fruit, um, but how far would it really go? I don't, I don't, I don't know. We're, we're going to have to see. I am skeptical because I've always seen people try and beat the UFC at their own game and lose. Uh, 
I've seen it over and over and over and over again. But we shall see. We shall see. Someone saying, uh, thoughts on Jones versus Gone. The re- the defensive wrestling of Gone, to me, seems like a very important question here. I was hoping that Gone wouldn't take the Tuivasa fight, but instead would fight Curtis Blades. Now, you might say, well, Gone can keep it at range the whole time. I'm skeptical he can keep it at range the whole time. I think he can keep it at range for long portions of the fight. I think he's got good takedown defense. I don't know, and I God, who only knows about John's wrestling at this point? It fell off a cliff at the end of light heavyweight, but again, was that those fights? Was that John in the moment that he was in? How do you was he was it burnout? Was it well, none of that will matter at heavyweight anyway? Like, there's all these unknowable pieces of information upon which we're we're forced to make generalizations from. It's just too difficult. Um, this won't tell us, but if John still has good wrestling ability, let's just say that something approximating what he had and some of his better days at light heavyweight, that might be a problem for gone. That might be a problem. Is Strickland the new Bisping dog tough to put away? Great cardio, good boxing, but not really a great knockout threat. Uh, yeah, but, but Bisping actually has, you know, uh, was able to, he took more damage. I think his fights were a little bit more back and forth. How does can I answer that one already? What about the eye poke situation in the Ige fight? Didn't look like a eye poke to me. They're talking about like it being a rub over the top, but I, I didn't see a ton of evidence for that. Strickland thanking the UFC for the big payday, saying he's a company man. Then following that up by saying fans need to support fighters after their careers because they will likely be broke teaching karate kickboxing. Yeah, it didn't make a lot of sense. Didn't make a lot of sense. Anyway, someone goes, F that card. Talk Jones versus Gone and Gaethje versus Fazeev. I think Gaethje Fazeev was for the 286 London card, if memory serves. Yeah, man. Jones versus Gone. That is huge. That is huge. Uh, we'll probably have to carve out a piece of this and make a separate video out of it. Um, all right. I have gone longer than I'm supposed to, and I think I need to go do something else now because I'm being summoned by the people in charge. Thank you guys so much for watching. I, uh, I know this was all. I haven't done one of these in a little while. It's a little rusty, but I appreciate you guys tuning in. Thank you so much. Um, we'll be back soon with a full live show to react to everything. And uh, yeah, that's it for right now. So uh, thank you guys for tuning in. And until next time, enjoy the fights. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.